Welcome, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I'm pleased to welcome Christy M. to the 52nd episode of this podcast series. Her exceptional story is one of early addiction evolving into a five-year struggle with alcoholism in her 30s. Though she spent only a couple years in that quagmire before she found AA, her descent to the bottom was both swift and severe. Trying to justify, then hide her alcoholism from her husband, kids, and employer only revealed to them how much worse Christie's drinking had actually become. By the time she finally ran out of excuses and began a vigorous AA program in 2018, she was physically and mentally depleted. Getting a sponsor, working the steps, and attending daily meetings drew her towards the center of the program. That early work portended two crises in her early sobriety that pulled her from the center to the outskirts of AA. First, her husband suffered a major stroke, and she became his primary caregiver. Fortunately, the time she had invested in meetings and getting to know others in the program was clearly realized when her newfound AA friends gathered around to help pull her through. Then in early 2020, Christy was diagnosed with a rare form of spinal cancer, which left her without use of her legs. Complicating the already horrendous situation was a pandemic that prevented Christy from being able to have visitors during the four months she was hospitalized undergoing intensive cancer treatment. Fortunately, she was able to connect with her home groups via Zoom. All of her fellow AAs were able to support her on a daily basis. Today, with three and a half years of sobriety, Christy is on the mend, learning how to live life without the use of her legs. Her tragedies during early sobriety and staying sober through them are informative, valuable, and inspirational to those she touches. Zoom had a bad day during my interview with Christy, so her audio is less than stellar. But her message of hope, perseverance, and commitment comes through loud and clear. So pull up a seat for the next 60 minutes and listen to the inspirational words of my AA sister on today's AA Recovery Interviews podcast, Christy M. I'm Christy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Christy. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Howard. I'm so glad to see you. I saw you on Halloween Day, I believe, at the meeting over at the club. It was. And you were dressed... Incredibly, that costume. What exactly was that costume? Was that Bride of Frankenstein? No, it was a Day of the Dead uh, uh, festival skeleton. So it was a kind of a celebration of, of, of the lives of those who went before us. Yeah, that's a Mexican tradition, is it not? It uh, is. Dia de los Muertos. That's it. You said it better than I could have. <laughs> uh, so you were celebrating that in addition to Halloween, but you looked fabulous. I was. Thank you. In fact, I think you were the only person who was dressed up that day at the club. Yeah, I was the only one in costume. <laughs> yeah, well, it was so so good to see you after not seeing you for a very long time because you and I met right after you got sober, I think within maybe the first couple of weeks or a couple of times to the club over there. Mm -hmm. That would have been, what, three and a half years ago? Yes. That was in uh, March 25th, 2018, right? I remember seeing you, you were coming into that meeting for a period of time, but you got sick shortly thereafter or you were, were you already ill at that time? Well, the first one to get ill was my husband. Um, he had a stroke after I had been, um, after I had been sober about six months. Uh, oh my. Maybe a little longer. He, 
she had a stroke and uh, it was a big uh, heavy duty one that that uh, disabled her quite severely. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, I, I mean he's 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 still with us. He's good, you know. He's he's a wonderful, wonderful man, and uh, and I I really got a chance to make the right decisions for him medically because I was sober because I could be there and and I could I could be present and call the right people and get the ambulances out and everything. So this happened six months after you got sober. It did. Was that the first time you'd ever attempted to get sober? It is. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, my original uh, addiction actually was, was food. My, uh-huh. um, my family, my entire family are, uh, are chronic readers. And um, that was my first addiction. And I got rid of that and mm. then transferred into a million different things. And oh, yeah. Finally landed yeah. So somewhere along the way, you realized that you were an alcoholic. Yes. That's a powerful realization to come to, isn't it? It is. It it is just to to realize, you know, and I I think in that moment, but my thought because I'd known many people who had become sober, I thought I, I don't know what the answer is, but mm-hmm. I know that these people here do. You yeah. know, I can go to this place and they'll help me. So your husband has a stroke six months into your sobriety. Did you ever, when you first came into AA, did you ever think you'd get the level of support that you ended up getting from the people in the rooms? Never dreamed. It wasn't even a part of what I was in there looking for. I just wanted somebody to tell me how to how to not drink. I, I didn't expect to have um, so many people. You know, I, I was sitting there at his bedside. It was three or four days after the, the stroke, and I didn't leave. You know, I was always there. And I was sitting there, and I, my mom said, Christy, who's, who's texting you? And I, said, I looked at my phone and I said, nine women from AA and you. Oh. <laughs> oh, it wow. was just like everybody was just right there checking on me, you know, making sure I was okay. That's amazing. That's amazing. I've been the recipient of that when I had my second back operation. People knew about it, but I never expected that so many people would call and several came over on a daily basis even though I was up and out of bed within uh, about a week, it, it it surprised me. And I was already sober. Let me see. That would have been 93. I would have been sober about five years. And you always wonder whether or not the, the fellowship's going to be there for you if you get really sick or if someone around you gets really sick. So what did having those nine women around mean for you during this very difficult period with your husband? Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it just... Uh, the fact was I was struggling, you know, yeah. I was struggling and I, I, I was struggling with my sobriety and I, I was having trouble holding on to my, my own. I was making it to a meeting a day and I, I, I called my sponsor and I said, I said, um, I need you to tell me it's not selfish to go to my meeting, even though he's stuck in this hospital. And she said, Christy, give me a break, go to a meeting. You know? <laughs> and I told my husband, I said, look, I need these meetings. And I, I need you to be okay for a couple hours while I leave and go to, go to these meetings. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, he was perfectly understanding, you know, and his staff was understanding, you know, mm-hmm. that I didn't want to have any major um, meetings with his uh, medical staff without me being there. You know, they all kind of worked around AAs. Mm-hmm. Really amazing. I mean, just, just, having that kind of support for me and for him, you know, I mean, for him too. That's what happened at six months. Prior to the six months, had there been any challenges to your sobriety prior to his stroke beyond just the normal stuff that people face when they first join the program? Yes, we had, there was a run of things. Now I did have a few months of really good, easy, and I say easy, quote unquote, easy sobriety, you Uh know, where, where, 
um, I could just concentrate on my sobriety and I didn't have to worry about a lot else. My job was very simple and, uh-huh. and I did well. And um, I could really just concentrate on getting me well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did have a, a dog who passed away mm-hmm. and I had a um, fraudulent charge brought against me that was proven to be fraudulent mm-hmm. later. Pretty hairy time. And, and, and it was just after a few short months of sobriety. But I'd say it all kind of started at around six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something to have all that going on early in sobriety and then at six months have a major, major event occur. And then you had some issues with your health after that, didn't you? I did. Now, that was in uh, March of uh, 2020. So it was right at the very beginning of the pandemic. Mm. And I woke up one morning after I had been having back pain for several months and I'd been going to my doctor and trying to diagnose it, doing some tests and they hadn't figured it out. And I woke up one morning and my legs didn't work Mm. and um, they were numb and I could barely walk on them. Uh And I had a doctor appointment that morning uh, with my primary care doctor. And so I thought, well, I just need to get there. I wasn't Uh thinking right, you know, and I, I, I I didn't call an ambulance. I just took an Uber. (laughs) (laughs) I got, I got there and, um, and he wheeled me over to the hospital, and they found a, a big uh, cancer in, in my spine. Oh, my goodness. Wrapped around my spine. And so um, there was a lot of irreparable damage that was done. But they did a lot of procedures and um, did a lot of work on me, killing the cancer and then killing the infections that came with the cancer. And um, That started in March of 2020. I remember the transition from you being in meetings, and then I didn't see you for a while, and then, of course, COVID came along. But then you were joining us on the Zoom meetings for the club from your hospital bed. Yes. How long did you do that for? Uh, well, I was in the hospital for four months, and I tried to join every day. There were a couple of days where I was too ill. To mm-hmm. make a meeting. And when I couldn't make a noon meeting, which is my um, home meeting, I would go to one at eight o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. I found a way to get a meeting in a day, pretty much the whole four months that I was in the hospital. And then I went to a rehab facility and um, and I continued to do that there. Wow. Lots of times people wonder whether or not, especially in new sobriety, whether they can stay sober when the big, very challenging things happen, like either the health of a loved one or their own health suffers. What were you thinking about your own sobriety and the quality of your sobriety when you were sitting there in the hospital for four months? Well, oh, God, that's a that's a question. I think initially um, I was terrified. I, I couldn't get alcohol in the hospital. Sure. Everyone in my family and friends list knows, everyone I know knows I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't get alcohol that I was safe from alcohol, That's but I good. wasn't safe from the thinking that makes you drink, you know? So mm-hmm. I was very, um, confused and scared in the beginning. And then, um, when the pandemic started, they kind of closed it down the hospital in stages. And first it was only two visitors a day. And then it was only two visitors four hours only in and then it kind of closed down completely, and then there were no visitors. And then my medical staff stopped coming. Oh my! Because um, my oncologist is elderly, and his PA was pregnant, oh so they stopped goodness. coming too. And so I was kind of—I didn't have a wheelchair yet. I was stuck in the bed, newly paraplegic, with nobody to talk to, and no mm. way to get out of bed. And I thought, okay, Christy, this is it. Are you going to get close to God? Because mm. you got nothing but God right here. Yeah. You know, you're sitting here, and I'm so sorry, I get no, emotional, but that's... you're sitting in a room, you got nobody to talk, but you know that you can work on that relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. And my sponsor had given me 
a lot of literature. And so mm-hmm. I had a lot of reading to do cool. and I had a lot of meditation to do mm-hmm. and watching a lot of bar rescue. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, did, you know, I did a lot of other stuff too, but I really had an opportunity to build my relationship with God and, and, and to learn, you know, to watch YouTube videos on how to load a wheelchair in and out of a car and to mm. watch YouTube videos about what it's like travel on an air so on top of what you were going through so covid hits and they start closing the hospital down and you can't have visitors at that point at all huh yeah they shut down all the visitors and i had a, a private room so it was just kind of and i'm an extrovert i don't do well with that i would have loved to have been in a semi-private room oh yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah somebody to talk to it was pretty gross it was and it was gross for a long time it, the pandemic really started at the end of march and yeah. i was admitted on march 5th so I only had a couple of normal weeks. So you were in until June sometime with that kind of situation around you. Uh, yes. Were you in the same room the whole time or did they move you because of what was going on with COVID in the hospital? I got moved um, several times, but it was always related to an ICU incident. There were a couple of times when um, I had to be moved because I became medically unstable. There was one time when I came really close to actually dying. Really? So when they would move me over to the ICU and get me stabilized and move me back, I always got a different room, which was kind of cool because it was a change of, you know, scenery. Same nurses. Yeah. Prior to this spiritual awakening, you just said you felt you needed to get closer to God. What was your spiritual or your spirituality with regard to the program and uh, your life like before that moment or before the uh, the realization that you had to get close to a higher power? Well, I think uh, going back, I mean, even even back to my childhood, I had a very comfortable spiritual relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very comfortable in, in my relationship with him until I started to drink and, and I felt like I kind of pulled away from him. I know um, when I first came into the rooms, I had to put my faith in the fact that, uh, that the other alcoholics were getting worse. You know, I had to look around and go, okay, I can put my faith on that and that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my relationship with God built um, after becoming sober, after working the steps, um, my relationship started to build. But yeah, I never got as close to him as I did um, when I was in the hospital. And I've, I've tried to maintain that, although when the crisis has passed, it's easy to slip away from it a bit. Yeah, yeah. And start taking personal credit for the stuff that was God was taking care of all along, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I get that. You mentioned a childhood that was spiritually connected until you started drinking. When and what was that like when that happened? Did you lose the connection immediately or what happened that created that rift? Oh, gosh, I I never even thought about it. But it's obvious to me since you've asked the question. I've never Mm. been a liar. My whole life, I've never been a liar. I was taught better than that. And I felt myself um, lying about mm-hmm. the drinking and, and lying about uh, my behaviors. And uh, I think I started to become um, someone that I wasn't mm-hmm. proud of. And that's what led me mm-hmm. away from it. What age were you when you first took a drink or started drinking? Gosh, you know, I, it was always for me, it was sonic cheeseburgers. You know, it was never about uh-huh. the, the drinking. And so when I met my husband and I only drank mm-hmm. for five years. When I met my husband, he handed me a drink and I handed most of it back to him at the mm-hmm. end of the evening. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, it was a big drink. And I, I don't know why people drink like that. <laughs> <in the afternoon. laughs> I really thought, I really honestly thought he was crazy. And then 
he said, what kind of wine do you like? And I said, I don't drink wine. I never like alcohol yeah. much at all. You know, I said, I don't like wine. And he says, well, let's just try a bottle a night until you find one you like. And as a result of that uh, little, little science experiment, I ended up addicted to alcohol, specifically wine. <laughs> so that was five years prior to your getting sober. Yes. So you had an abbreviated period of alcoholism itself, but it sounds like from what you said earlier that you were battling other addictions from a pretty early age. When you came to terms with the other addiction, did you do it through a 12-step program or how did you handle that? I didn't. I, I saw a, a dietitian and I uh, went to a few classes, but I did join uh -huh. a support group. So I did have the, the community mm -hmm. around me, you know, and people talking about what they, you know, best practices, sharing their stories. That was very helpful to me. Did you know about at that time, like OA and some of the other 12-step programs that were available for other addictions? I didn't. And what's shocking about that is that my uh, husband at the time, my ex-husband, has been sober as long as I've known it. So I don't know why I never thought about finding a 12-step program. It didn't even occur. Sober. He was sober in AA? Yes. I think he's had 35 years or something now. He's had a long, long haul. Some of the other 12-step programs are relatively new. Uh, programs like Al-Anon and some of the drug addiction 12-step programs or OA or GA. Or When I talk to men who I sponsor who are in other 12-step programs for different addictions, we get spoiled by the fact that we've got thousands of AA meetings every week here in Houston. But when it comes to some of the other lesser considered addictions, they have a hard time finding meetings. And I can imagine uh, how difficult it would be for someone who turned to a 12-step program for help. Did you subsequently become involved in a 12-step program for that? I did not. No. The only 12-step program I've ever been in is AA. I, I just, you know, I've, I've formed new new habits and, and I kind of mm. white knuckled it. And honestly, I didn't do anything mm. about my addiction. I, I just transferred it onto other things, mm. relationships, uh, computer games, uh, online shopping. I mean, my goodness. I, I, it was always mm. something. Considering what you know about Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of recovery and the solutions that we offer for the spiritual, mental, and physical malady of alcoholism. In looking back, had you been able to apply that to the other addictions that, let's say, you had from a much younger age, what would that have been like for you? Do you have you ever thought about that? Yes. I think about it all the time, actually. Uh, it would have been a game changer. I mean, I, I apply these principles to my uh -huh. eating now. You know, I, I, I go, you know, like, Christy, are you wanting this ice cream because you want to change uh -huh. the way you feel? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know? I mean, I know I know a lot now that I didn't know then. I think it would have been a, a complete game changer. That crossover is so important. And I don't hesitate to tell men I sponsor, especially if they've got a, a an alcoholic spouse, that they should probably go to Al-Anon. Or if they've got a, uh, a child who's dealing with addiction, that they should go to... Al-Anon, or if they're battling their own addictions in addition to alcoholism, like let's say gambling or sex addictions, whatever they might be, to seek out the 12 steps in those programs. And by virtue of having worked an AA program, they're a lot more comfortable going in to that and also applying what they know in AA to their particular situation. So you've done that over the years that you've been in AA, you've applied that to other things. Has it made a big difference in those other areas, or would you have been able to continue on the way you were? 
I, I think it makes a difference and it makes a difference because now I have to be honest, you know, that was never expected of me before. Not, not in uh -huh. any real way, you know, now I have to be honest. I have to be honest about everything. You know, I, I don't have, I don't have the choice anymore to be dishonest. If I'm going to be, you know, if I'm going to be doing this, I, I need to do it. <laughs> was there alcoholism or other addictions in, in your, in your family tree, let's say from grandparents? Did you know of any outward addictions in any of your grandparents and that sort? Uh, no. Now, it's been food uh, in my mother's family and uh, my father's family as well. Mm. It's been food. It's, you know, we, we Cajun, they're all good Cajun cooks. They get together and they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat. And we do it too. We eat and we eat all the time, all the time. Well, a lot of times with those kind of events, especially the, the Cajun events I've been to, drinking is also a pretty big part of that as well. But was that not the not so much the case in your family? Not, not in my family. No, um, my my mom doesn't really like it, and she doesn't like it when people do it, uh -huh. you know, around her. So it was never, it was always kind of frowned on. She never said anything, but you could tell she didn't really like it, you know, when people started to get uh, tipsy. So that was, I was, I was the only family drunk. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure if I went into my cousins and you know, I could find some some examples of alcoholism. I'm certain. So that almost nine years ago, when your husband first offered you the wine and you started drinking in your five-year drinking career, were you chasing anything in particular or were you just experimenting? What was your frame of mind when you started drinking eight and a half or nine years ago? Um, I think so. I, this is going to sound so stupid, but my, my husband is, is very uh, fancy. He's elegant, you know, and I'm not. And, and so to me, the whole lifestyle where you come home at night and open a bottle of wine with the corkscrew and the, the, you know, it just seems so fancy. It just seems so glamorous and like something I should be doing because that's what, you know, people in the fancy neighborhoods do. And it was so silly, but I just, I just thought it, it's not, and, and he did it and he was fine. He didn't drink regularly. You know, he's, he's, he's not an alcoholic and he's not an addict in, in any way, but, uh, I just thought it was so glamorous and that, and that it was so grown up and why had I gotten to, you know, over 40 years old and, and or almost 40 years old. And I, 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 I didn't know how, how, how continental you could feel <laughs> Isn't <it> silly? <laughs> as a grown mother of teenagers. I don't, I don't think so. I, you know, there are times that I would watch some of the old movies where people were able to, you know, being top hats and beautiful dresses and uh, having the aperitif with their meal or the wine before and the brandy after with the cigar, that all looked very, very attractive. And uh, But I never drank that way. That was never me. That was no, never me. I think I did for about three weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you, you transitioned from being elegant and attractive in your drinking for a three-week period what happened at three weeks <laughs> <laughs> i think uh in the beginning is my husband's yeah. quite old-fashioned and so in the beginning i was i was living i had an apartment yeah. elsewhere with a roommate and i was going to his house and i was always at his house i went like once a month to my place to pick up clothes and things and um but when i even when i was away i would open a bottle of wine because it felt oh. so special <laughs> and then I, I, I don't know, like there, there were, 
any bump in the road, any little bump in the road. And I'd be like, well, that's okay. Cause I could be elegant later and have a little glass of wine. And then, um, I found that there was this little Vietnamese restaurant that was amazing. And the guy who uh-huh. ran the bar knew he was a very uh-huh. avid reader. And so was I, and sometimes I needed to kill a little time before my husband got home. And so, mm-hmm. and we were just dating at the time, but, um, I started talking to that guy and then it was real fun uh-huh. to go to the bar because I had somebody to talk to about all these books. We had read all the same thing. And then before you knew it, I was just spending all my time there. And then, and then I was buying bottles to bring home, drink in the uh-huh. bathtub. You know, it was just, it just snowballed really quickly. Huh. That's interesting. I, I don't think I've interviewed a guest yet that referred to their drinking as elegant. The reason they drank that particular day is because they wanted to feel elegant or whatever. <laughs> it's so it's so silly, but I just thought like this was a different yeah. lifestyle, you know? We didn't drink in the afternoons. I mean, who drinks at three o'clock yeah. in the afternoon? I thought this must be what Wow. Wow. <laughs> I did. I, I really thought that. I really did. So how did things ramp up from there to the point at which you started to notice problems with your drinking? Oh, well, th- things started to get heavy. I know um, my boss at work, one, one, we had a party in the mm-hmm. offices uh, and he got one. He said, make sure nobody's overserved. And I was the one who was overserved, you know, like I would be asked, we go places um, together as a, as a company. And when we would get there, uh, I would drink too much. It was always at bars. And I always, I, I, no matter what I did, if I pre, you know, I was trying to do that thing where maybe if I pre-drink, then I won't have to drink as much. And then it'll, maybe if I don't drink that, mm-hmm. but I drink this. And I was playing all those games and, and it just started to just, to just fall apart. And then my kids were saying, you know, mom, you take us to these movies and you just fall asleep in the middle of the movie. You know, we'll rent a movie at home and I'll do the same thing. And, um, they were, they were, my husband was finding me passed out, but the real thing mm-hmm. that just started getting very, very messy was when, um, my husband retired because before he retired, he went to work very early. He mm-hmm. worked in oil and gas and I worked in healthcare. So I would go to work much later. And so twice a week when the trash would come, I would load up my bottles and go and take them out and put them in the trash and they would mm-hmm. be taken away after he was gone. Well, um, he retired and all of a sudden there are all these bottles everywhere and they're just building. There's just bottles everywhere and I can't ever take them out. He's home. Yeah. And so I started to really get worried about that. Everything was just kind of rushing toward me. You were drinking more when you were on your own and, and as things started to ramp up, you said what about three months in or uh, probably, yeah, I'd say three to six months. Um, I, I would mm-hmm. incorporate my husband into the drinking, but only a full mm-hmm. portion of it. You know, I would pre-drink and then I would drink with my husband and mm-hmm. then I would post-drink. So he didn't ever know about the other one. He didn't know about the bar before I came home and he didn't know about the bathtub when we were uh, when we were done with dinner. I think he just thought I took really long baths. He didn't notice it at all? I mean, during the time you were drinking or did he just not say anything about it? He would find me passed out a lot. And, and I, I think he's just very diplomatic. He doesn't want to upset the apple cart. I mean, he would say, you know, I'm concerned about you, Christy. And then he would drop it. But I'm sure he was quite concerned. What was your response when he said that to you? This is a man who who I, I have a lot of respect for. So when somebody says something like that to you, I mean, I, I knew I knew I was messing up. I knew I, I was in a bad place. I knew I was being mm-hmm. dishonest with him. 
so I had a lot of shame and I had a lot of um, sort of uh, oh, self-loathing. Yeah. You know, I felt like, I mean, here, this person comes along and, and, and wants to offer you all of this emotional yeah. security and all of this good stuff. And you can't even stop from falling down at his, at his work function, you know? <laughs> that only happened once, but yeah. once is enough. It was a really hard way to feel because I'd never felt that way in my life. I mean, I'd always been powerless mm-hmm. over food or for at least the first 20 mm-hmm. years of my life. But I, I learned how to cook in different ways. And, I, you know, it, it, it doesn't affect your life and sanity like, like alcohol does. It's so demoralizing. Whenever it was that you were drinking and he was noticing it, did that create a situation where you felt like you needed to get out of the way or do it on the sly or find more and more clever ways to disguise it so that he wouldn't have to respond to it so often? Yes. And I did disguise it, um, but I I wasn't real careful about it. I mean, I didn't, I mean, I I think I was always a little afraid of of him finding out about this one thing, you know, but but the overall problem, it was really easy to tell him when I realized I was an alcoholic. It was really easy to sit down mm-hmm. and tell him that. But I was scared he was going to find those bottles. And I was scared, you know, and, and, and I knew that we were having a lot of emotional mm-hmm. uh, exchanges that were where we were both angry and, and, and probably sure. rightly so. But we were screaming and I, I threw a plate at him one time and I just thought, my God, who, who are you? You're not Christy. Christy wouldn't uh-huh. throw a plate. I mean, I missed him on purpose, but that doesn't matter. I threw a broke a plate on purpose. You don't do uh-huh. it. You know, I don't know. Alcohol just changed who I was. It changed me. You're noticing all these things. Did you ever attribute the feelings that you were having about having to hide bottles and do all these other things? Did you ever attribute it to alcoholism itself? Or did you see these as just periodic events that were something other than alcoholism? Oh, no. I I, I knew at that point. By the time I was hiding bottles, I knew. I think there was a time um, we would go to Colorado Mm -hmm. together in the summer. And there was a time when I would go and have these 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 fancy food and wine tours, and um, and I would drink too much, and then I'd come home and I'd go, I'm gonna not drink, you know, for the next week just to prove I can, not realizing that saying just to prove I can means I have yeah. a problem, you know. <laughs> I mean, it took a long time for me to come to the realization that I had a problem, but the last couple of years there was no question. I mean, my, uh, there there was nothing about my life that I could. If, if we were going to go somewhere um, to, to watch a movie, I'd rather go someplace that had alcohol. If we're going to go to a restaurant without one that didn't have alcohol, let's find a way to steer the kids in another direction. And, you know, I was, I was under the control. I, was, I, was, I didn't have any of my real life left. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the big book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. You've mentioned children a couple of times, uh, Christy, and I wondered what effect you saw your burgeoning alcoholism having on them and their lives. 
Oh gosh, yeah. Um, so I have four children. They're all now um, growing up. My youngest is uh, is seventeen. So it, it, it's um, they were all teenagers, and and we had you know been through their dad and I had been through an amicable divorce, but we we weren't on great terms. We mm-hmm. we did the best we could, but I had a very close relationship. But my children are all adopted. And the three younger ones have spent a lot of time with me throughout mm. all of this. The oldest um, kind of, um, he was much older when we adopted him. And he was, you know, he just wanted to be with his father. But um, the three younger ones, none of our interactions were as real as they used to be. And hmm. I knew it. I could feel it. You know, they would try to have these conversations with me and I would blur. And, and, you know, after the sun went down, I was getting my coffee cup and filling it up mm. with wine. And they knew what was in my coffee cup. My teeth mm-hmm. were turning purple, you know, and they, they would get annoyed because I'd say how much I wanted to see this movie. And I meant it, I meant it, you know, and we try to fan together sure. on certain things. You know, we all watch Marvel and we all watch Doctor mm-hmm. Who. And um, we'd be like, oh, I can't wait to see this one. And then I'd pass out mm-hmm. halfway through. And they'd be like, you know, mom, we were really looking forward to seeing that with you. That's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm sure. I've heard others express the same kind of heartbreak over that. But you stopped at a point where your relationships with them might have the opportunity to heal. And even my oldest, you know, who who has uh, always kind of harbored a resentment against Mm. most women because of his upbringing early, uh, early on. We've gotten close as well, and he's about to uh, make me a grandma for the first time. You know, he and I are working on a relationship together for the first time, and he's he's 22, and mm-hmm. we got him, we adopted him when he was seven, and we've never really had huh. a relationship like we do now. So it's it's a uh, it's and the, the younger three were very close. You know, we, we talk. You've given them the opportunity to be able to have a sober mom for the past three and a half years. They had to watch you early on, but they, they did. And one of them, uh, my my oldest daughter, has moved in with me, and will probably mm-hmm. be with me for good. I hope, you know, it's right. a good, it's a good little relationship. Um, my youngest daughter just uh-huh. spent several nights the other day, and I've been able to maintain a very comfortable relationship with with my children without all the crazy manipulative histrionics that I used to exhibit in my parenting. <laughs> Did the divorce mean joint custody of the children, or how did that work? Uh, no, I was always the breadwinner, and my ex-husband uh-huh. was always the stay-at-home dad, uh-huh. so we just kept those roles. Um, I did see them, in, even in the middle of my um, active alcoholism, I saw them every other weekend and sometimes more regularly, but I was pretty checked out. You know, I was I was not nearly as engaged with them as I am normal. What did checked out look like for you on a regular basis at the height of your alcoholism? You know, it felt like I was hurling myself at all my responsibilities. I had a lot of responsibilities and I would just hurl myself at them, check them off the list, get to the bar, get home, get to the bathtub. Hmm. You know, my my day-to-day work schedule, by three o'clock, I was trying to figure out a way to get off work early somehow so that I could get to the bar early enough where I could get a few drinks to me before I got home to fill so that we could have the the alcohol with dinner so that I could have more alcohol in the bath. I just got through what I had to get through white knuckled until I could, until I could go somewhere. 
Otherwise. So you were able to keep your job. It sounds to me like even the time that you were with the company and, and you had some issues around it. So you were a functional alcoholic in, in all respects, weren't you? I was. And, and the reason, and I know that I do have a, a high um, rock bottom. Um, and I think because I've dealt with, with my addictive personality, because I know the only way out is to find the people who have succeeded and, and learn from them what they did to because I, what uh-huh. I'm doing isn't working, right? I knew this. And I, I saw things, bad things rushing towards me. I was missing deadlines at work. My boss was not happy with me. Um, so yes, I was, I was very high functioning for a very long time. But when I stumbled into that AA room mm-hmm. on that Monday morning, um, I was coming in having disappointed my hmm. everybody in my life, disappointed my mom, disappointed my kids, disappointed my husband, disappointed my boss. And, and, and I couldn't help hmm. it anymore. I couldn't stop the behaviors that were disappointing hmm. everyone. So I thought, okay, the, it, it can't stop these behaviors that are disappointing everyone. So um, I just have to I have to find the people who know what they're talking. So you got there not a day too soon, didn't you? I think so. I think I, I think you know I don't think anybody's hmm. rock bottom is as low as it could get. It could get lower. Yeah. I think it could always get. Lower. Mine, mine was low enough. Yeah, low enough. I like to say about my own entree into Alcoholics Anonymous, my life got bad enough that I had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that idea that it's the last house on the block, that's pretty significant. The idea that if you don't get sober, you're going to die, that's pretty significant. So yeah, it makes sense, irrespective of where the bottom really is. Were you able to embrace the program immediately when you got in? Or was there a period of time for you that uh, you were doubtful or resistant. I, you know what? I'll tell you this. I've known a lot of sober people. And my friend Fernando I, told me at a party one time, the best thing that ever happened to him was that he uh, quit drinking. And I, I realized at that point that I had been partying all this time joyfully hmm. with somebody who did not drink. You know, it didn't even occur to me that he hmm. was standing next to me not drinking. And I, I was at a point where I was just like desperate. And I asked, you know, what? Oh, where do I go? get some of that <laughs> and he's like you go anywhere anywhere's good anywhere's good but I uh-huh. love the Delta and, I, and that was near work and so um, I went and I had known so many people who were sober and they were all people I admired and people who I thought um, in, in, in my life in my experience the people who had been sober had, had, had become more emotionally intelligent and so when I came in, it all sounded like space age weirdness. It did. It sounded weird, you know, but it also sounded like something that would work because there were so many people in the room telling yeah. me that it worked. I did think for the uh-huh. first year or so that most of you were lying. <laughs> really? <laughs> I did. I thought, I don't believe it for a minute. Half of these people are going home oh and drinking every night. <laughs> did. did you feel like you were entitled to that? To, to go home and drink? Yeah. No, I didn't. You know, I, I felt like I was meeting new people and they all said, you know, come back and don't drink. And, you know, they all said these things. And I, I felt like, you know, that at least some of them knew how to make that not happen. I mean, I know that my friends in AA didn't drink, but I thought maybe y'all were different. <laughs> you know, from time to time, you do run into people who are going home from the meeting and drinking. Those people tend not to make it for very long in the program. When you came in, how how long was it until you got yourself a sponsor? You know, it happened pretty quickly. I asked um, a woman uh, immediately after my first meeting wow. if she could be my sponsor. And um, 
And she agreed. And, and we didn't work out very well in a sponsor relationship. Sweetest woman, uh, very mm-hmm. good to me. Um, she took me through several of the steps. Um, it just wasn't the right relationship. And so I, I said, let's just be friends instead. And we remained friends. And I, I went and asked the woman who I, I knew could help me to get me, get me past some of the things I was working on. And, and, and it was a very good situation. So I've never been without a sponsor since the first day, which is good, but I did switch once. So regarding the action steps of the program, four and five, eight mm-hmm. and nine, what were your experiences with that? And, and to what degree did your sponsor guide you in those processes? Gosh, you know, a four and five were really, really an epiphany for me. Um, I tell people all the time huh. that after I did five, I could breathe for the first time in a yeah. really, really long time. I mean, um, we sat at her house and it took hours. It took hours. And I couldn't stop talking. Once I opened my mouth, I just went on and on and on. And I must uh-huh. have been really painful for her. <laughs> but um felt like I'd lost 20 pounds in a minute. You know, like I could just get mm-hmm. up and float away. And, and, and then when I mm-hmm. started making amends to people, I, I saved the real big bad one. You know, the real yeah. big bad thing I did. I saved it and saved uh-huh. it and saved it and sat on it and sat on it. And, and I never felt any relief. From those men until I, hmm. until I talked to my you know, It was a very positive experience. You can still feel it too, I guess. Yeah. Huh? yeah. She's been my uh, my number one cheering. You know, she's been in my cheering section right there in the front, both of my sisters and my mom through all yeah. this illness, through all this stuff. And I just needed to, and, and she didn't even blame because she just stopped and she said, Well, I'm really grateful for your recovery. I'm just really so grateful for your recovery. And um, sometimes the best amend that we can make. It can also be the most permanent amend because it's something we can continue to do on a daily basis. And and what a gift for her to have a sober sister. I think so. I think so. And I think um, I've been a better sister uh-huh. and a better daughter and a better mother and, you know, a better wife. I've, I've been better. I've been better at all the things. You know, I think that my illness concentrated my life and made me stop and look at all the things I was doing and and. and and pick and choose what things I wanted to continue doing, you know, and, and yeah. concentrate on the people that really matter mm-hmm. and, and concentrate on my program and concentrate on my family. Nothing else really matters. Well, and what's beautiful about it is that you've stayed sober through these very, very difficult times. One of the things that I've talked to a lot of my guests about is if they were to get very, very sick or something tragic or catastrophic were to occur in their lives, what do they think the likelihood of their willingness to go out and drink or use drugs or something like that would be? You've gone through these things now and you've stayed sober. At any point while you were going through them, did you think this is just too hard? Trying to stay sober in the midst of all this other stuff is just not worth it? Or did you retain the belief throughout? No, I think um, there were several times when it just felt, um, mm-hmm. and when it felt like it was too hard, you know, when it felt like, like it was just too much. It was just too much to ask, you know. And and I, I got a, a lot of those cases mm-hmm. of the why me, and you know, I mean, why why would I? Why would my husband have a stroke, and then why would I have spinal cancer? I mean, yeah. you can't win a lottery yeah. with those odds, you know. And I I just. Uh, I did have those moments and I had those moments where I thought about it. And then I did what y'all told me to do. And I played the tape out, you know, I, I thought about it from beginning to end. What's that going to look like? Where would you go? Well, you wouldn't go to the Vietnamese restaurant because everybody there knows you're sober. So you go to Chili's right. or something, someplace yeah, with yeah. cheap wine and you get a glass. 
but how many glasses would you get? Then oh how would gosh. you be when you got behind the wheel? And then when you got home and you went to sleep and you're supposed to go see your husband tomorrow, but you know, you're going to be uh, terribly, you know, sick and, and you're going to have to go in and get that new chip, you know? So I just try to kind of like bring it down to the details of it. You know, what's it going to be like sitting in that cheesy chilies and, 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 you know, with all the drunk people at chili, I, I just, I, I have to remember what that's going to look like. I get that. And especially when you're showing up at meetings all the time, like you have a tendency to do people around you. I, uh, let me speak for myself. When I go to any AA meeting anywhere, people around me offer me that, which I cannot often get in the outside world. And that is people to care about people to help service to provide, uh, reminders of a relationship with a higher power that I may have overlooked or, you know, given minimal thought to throughout the day. You mentioned earlier about having that, that, uh, that kind of spiritual experience while you were in the hospital. The thing I'm most grateful for in all this, and this is so weird, is that uh, my primary care doctor, when we were, when we were trying to figure out what was wrong with me, I kept, you know, explaining away my own symptoms. I kept saying, oh, but this might be because of this, or this might be because of that. So Mm -hmm. we were delayed to the point where I lost my mobility to a point. Well, if they, if I hadn't lost my mobility, they wouldn't have done the um, laminectomy, which is the spinal surgery they did to uh, relieve the pressure on my spine. Um, and if they hadn't done that, they wouldn't have taken two biopsies, one from the top of the uh, tumor and one from the bottom. And if they hadn't done that, they wouldn't have been able to diagnose the cancer because it was extremely rare. So if I hadn't lost my mobility, I would probably be dead. They would have misdiagnosed it and given me the wrong chemo and killed me. Isn't that mm-hmm. crazy? Thank God. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you something else. You know, they, they put me on all this medication and I said, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with this. I'm sober, you know, but so right now my paralysis starts right above the knee. But when I first went in, my mm-hmm. paralysis started right at my breastbone. And so, uh, I finally said, look, I mean, who's to say it's even going to hurt? It's, it's my back. That part is paralyzed. Take me off the medication because I, I wasn't comfortable being all loopy all the time. I said, take me off the medication and let's just see, you know, let's see. It. Let's see it. I didn't feel it. They took me off the medication and I said, give me some Tylenol. I'm good. You know? Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. A hundred percent. I was really glad when the Zoom meetings took off because there was a brief, um, hiatus. There was a, there was a time when I was in the hospital and, um, there were no zoom meetings yet with everything shutting down and me, um, having to stop and breathe and rely on God. There there was a, there was a moment, there was a moment when, uh, they, they gave me the name of my cancer and I was trying so hard not to to Google it because that was the deal I had made with my family. I'm not going to Google it. I'm just going to let it be, but I was alone in a room. I mean, how do you not do that? And I had to, oh, I had to pray so feverishly. You know, just yeah. keep my fingers off the button. It was a spiritual experience. I, I felt peaceful throughout most of my recovery. And this has been such an expensive recovery, relearning how to walk, learning how to how to drive a, a car with hand controls, you know, constant trips to the rehabilitation center to, to work on my physical abilities. And, and it's just been a road. And it's been one that I've traveled with a yeah. lot of peace because I, I was given this this understanding that. I have as much chance as any other human has of making it through this, right? 
I have this cancer. Yeah. It might kill me. It might not kill me. Sure. Um, if it's going to kill me, do I want to spend these last moments on earth ingesting this thing that has taken away so many years of my life? And, and I don't. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. The peace that has gotten me through all of this is incredible. I don't think I've ever felt it before. I can imagine. It must be an extraordinary feeling to be able to have that realization. I first noticed your desire to stay sober when you volunteered to chair the meeting over there. You were you had not been sober all that long, and you were already volunteering to chair the meeting. I remember that and thinking, that's really remarkable. What was there about service work that attracted you, and how have you been involved in service to your AA group and your sponsees or sponsors and that sort of thing? I, uh, I love chairing the meetings, and I'll tell you what, I love chairing the meetings because, and, and you know, I was there every day of the week. Oh, yeah. I was there I did 90 and 90, and then I just kept flying with yeah. it and going every day for the longest uh-huh. time. But on Mondays, I knew I could, first of all, choose the person who I wanted to hear from, you know, <laughs> yeah. people that, that I thought maybe didn't get to get up there and leave very often, yeah. Yeah. you know, so I could pick some unusual different people. But also, I got a chance to listen and, and not have to worry about if I was going to share or not. And I love service. I mean, I want to make things easier on people. And, and you know, when I was working, I was an executive assistant. For, yeah. It's in my wheelhouse uh-huh. to want to make people, you know, to, to, to help people. So yeah. uh, more recently for the past, gosh, nine months, maybe I've been um, going on Mondays to uh, a rehabilitation center and, and bringing an AA meeting in there. It's been a lot of fun. I actually have really? my first fun seat from that experience. I was invited by another member to go in and bring an AA meeting into that. What a great piece of service work that is. I mean, it's exceptional. And you say you got yourself your first sponsee from that group? Yes. She's brand new, you know, and, and, and fresh out of the treatment center. And we've been working on, on her steps. And she's amazing. Does she remind you of you in any ways? In, in a lot of ways, yeah. She has a lot of similarities um, in it, that, you know, her relationship is intact, mm-hmm. like mine was, mm-hmm. um, and is already improving. And you hear these stories about people getting better and, you know, what it's like to watch somebody just glow up when they when they come out of that fog. Yeah, it is amazing, and I've had that opportunity over the years. I mean, I've had uh, I've had my share of sponsees who have not made it, a number of whom have died, and a number of whom have just fallen off the radar completely. And then there are others who have been sober now for decades, and the quality of their sobriety can be easily ascertained by watching how their sponsees and grand sponsees relate to other people. I'm just really thrilled to hear you talk about being a sponsor and offering yourself as a a trusted servant, let's say, at the meetings. It makes a big difference. People see you doing those things, and it inspires them to do it as well. So are you sponsoring any other other women at this point or or is she uh she's the only one and she's my first. I took a very long time um completing my step work because of all the craziness that was happening. Uh-huh. Um but once I got through it I was excited to be asked and 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 that's what my sponsor said. She said I I want you to get through these steps so that you could go out and sponsor women you you need to sponsor women. Yeah, availability is 9 tenths of the game. Once she's ready to sponsor, you'll know it, and you'll give her the same kind of encouragement your sponsor gave you, which is probably what her sponsor gave her, etc., on back in the lineage. That's that's really wonderful. So you're taking care of your husband, you're taking care of your kids, you're going to AA, 
Can you think of one or two more things that are now possible in your life that would not have been had you continued to drink? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, I mean, taking care of everybody is, is a lot of it. But also um, um, having these sane conversations, these conversations with my people, you know, with my mom and my sister, with, with nothing but upfront honesty and, and no manipulation. And I, I mean, I'm not going to intentionally hurt someone, but it does not matter mm-hmm. if I have an opportunity to relate to the world and to my people in a much more even uh, sane way. And I have the ability to let go of what I want to create in the future and let today be what it is right now. Um, it, it, in, in whatever feelings are brought to me, in whatever discomfort is brought to me, to be able to right now enjoy this day and not worry about yesterday. It's really marvelous to hear you talk about the gifts that you've experienced. The tough times that you've been able to get through without drinking, I think, are, are notable. And I'm astonished by what you've been able to accomplish in, in, a, in a short amount of time after a very concentrated period of being and getting started as an alcoholic. You found a way to put together sobriety that's gotten you through some extraordinarily difficult things. And and I honor you for that. I love you for that. And uh, the fact that we get to see each other now again in person means a lot to me. I'll be there tomorrow morning. Uh, do you usually go to that meeting too? I do. I go to two meetings on Sunday morning. All right. No, wait, tomorrow's Saturday. No, today is Saturday. No, it's today's Saturday. Okay, yes, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> cool. Well, I'll look forward to seeing you then, Christy. And again, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Howard. It's been a blessing. I appreciate you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Christy M. for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least three other people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved one, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you leave a multi-star rating where you get this podcast, that'll help others find it more easily. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, Play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>